But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Professor Bradley Anishi who is the author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism, and What Comes Next, and is also the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. Thanks for joining us, Brad. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I guess just to begin with, perhaps, could you tell us a little bit about your own history with evangelical Christian theology and how it brought you to sort of researching this area? Sure. I, I grew up in a largely non-religious home. My, my dad is a Japanese-American from Maui, my my side of the that side of the family's been in Maui for uh, over a century, and my mom's a white woman from Tennessee. So by the time I'm 14, I'm kind of getting in trouble, teenage stuff, and I uh, get invited to church by a girlfriend, and I'm thinking this is great. I can go to church, and we'll sneak out, we'll make out, and the mom will just think I went to a Bible study. This is a perfect <laughs> plan, and I get there, and I have pink hair and grunge clothes and all this stuff, and instead of turning me away, the the young youth group leaders were welcoming and they wanted to talk to me and they all had tattoos and guitars. And so I converted uh, very soon thereafter and my the girlfriend dumped me, but I stayed and, and basically underwent an extreme conversion. I, I would evangelize at my school. I would attend Bible studies on Wednesdays and Sundays and Sunday nights. And my mom asked me what I wanted for Christmas that year. And I told her I wanted a Bible and wanted her to send money to people in Nepal who had never heard about Jesus and this kind of thing. So by the time I was 20, I was a full-time minister. I was married to my high school sweetheart and about to start seminary. And yeah, I mean, completely saturated in the faith and in the church and the tradition. And a couple of years later, I, I was reading a lot. I'm kind of, that's what I do. I read and was was studying theology, but also philosophy and history. And I started to think that the Christianity that we had inherited was much more about a very narrow American vision of of Christianity than it was something that you'd find in the New Testament. And you start pulling on a thread and you end up pulling on some more. And I ended up going to Oxford to study theology. And by that time, I really wasn't even sure I was a Christian anymore. And uh, I've stayed in the religion game, so to speak. I'm a religion professor. But yeah, that, that journey kind of led me out of the the church per se, but I'm still somebody who studies these things and have been for the last 20 years. You write in the book about your personal Bible and how inside it there was this picture of Christ as this Swedish, Nordic, Aryan God figure. What is it about race that interacts with the evangelical church to create this white Christian nationalism? Yeah, I think that one of the things I started to realize is that the Jesus we we worshipped was a white Jesus. And I started to ask why that mattered. And it, the, the most disseminated image in American history is, is an image of Christ as, as you say, a Nordic looking man, somebody who, who by no means looks like he comes from the Middle East, from Israel, Palestine, and so on. 
So you start to think about that and you start to ask why. Why is not only the Jesus that we worship a white Jesus, but why is that the most disseminated image in American history? And you realize that uh, there's a lot of projection there, that uh, their desire to have a white savior, the desire to imbue the divine with white skin is something that has been pervasive throughout American history. And many, it's not just limited to, to the United States, unfortunately. And you start to think, well, what does that do? We can ask about history, we can ask about belief, but one of the questions I, I always like to ask is, what does it do for people? If, if Jesus is white, what does it do? And what it does is it gives whiteness a sense of transcendence and power and authority. And such that even today, if you visit some historically black churches or churches where there are predominantly people of color, you might find the white Jesus hanging in the front or the back or, or so on. I think that this is part and parcel with the history of white supremacy in this country and many other countries and the ways that whiteness has been seen in itself as superior to to any other racial category. And so when you add the the God-man element to it, it only gives it another dimension of supremacy. So once I started pulling on that thread, I, I realized just how far race was was part of the story that I had inherited. It seems, Bradley, that part of your downfall had to do with uh, reading too many books, but how common is it for, I guess, zealous teens such as yourself to grow up, to eventually leave their beliefs behind, or to most retain those beliefs through their lives? Well, I, I think that one thing that I like to remind people is that a lot of those folks who are now the ex-evangelical types like myself are not the ones who were kind of blasé about religion as a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old. And in fact, those of us who speak the, the loudest about our experiences are the ones who are the most devoted to uh, the church and to Christianity. Uh, some people will tell you that, oh, those folks who are leaving the faith, they were never Christians in the first place. And I would say that we were not the never wers. We are the duns. We gave everything we had. We devoted ourselves wholeheartedly. And we realized at the end that the center didn't hold. We got to the very center of, of the thing and realized that it didn't hold. It wasn't coherent. And so I think it's actually incredibly common for those of us who are zealous, who are interested, who are devoted to read, to explore, to investigate and to come up with a different answer than the one we started with. Bradley, the church you were a part of was in, I believe, Orange County in California. And in the book, you talk about the importance of that part of the world to the growth of white Christian nationalism. Can you briefly explain why California has emerged or Southern California has emerged or did emerge as it did as such a, a center for this kind of activity? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a long story, but it's an important one. When you think of Southern California, you think of good weather and beaches and surfers and and Disneyland and uh, and Los Angeles and Hollywood. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that after World War II in the 1940s and especially the 1950s, Southern California was the the this epicenter for the defense industry in the United States and as the world knows, the US spends more on defense than anyone combined. So you have this defense industry centered in Southern California. Well, at the time, that meant that millions of Southerners, white Southerners and white Midwesterners migrated from places like Georgia and Louisiana and Virginia and Missouri all the way to California. And 
they did so in what's called the Sunbelt Migration. By the 1960s, more Southerners live in California than any state in the South. And one of the arguments I make is that they were implants, not transplants. They didn't transplant to a new place. They weren't expats. I've lived in other countries. I've lived in the UK and France. And as an American living there, I I felt it was my duty to adjust my way of life and my way of thinking to kind of see the world through uh, the eyes of of the place where I was living. Well, they didn't have that idea. They they had the idea that they were going to shape Southern California in their image. And they were very successful. And in the 60s and 70s, what you see emerge is a particularly Californian brand of white Christianity based in megachurches, these uh, massive churches with charismatic leaders, which were really the, the grandfather or grandparent of, of Hillsong, which eventually emerged in Australia. And so these megachurches have a wide and deep influence on American Christianity. They start to really be the brand name. And uh, eventually you get uh, really important figures like James Dobson or Tim LaHaye, who emerge as nationwide leaders and, and influential figures. So Southern California, in the minds of many, is imagined as a liberal place with Hollywood and, and a kind of progressive politics. But if you look closer, what you'll see is a, is a place that has been deeply conservative for a long time, uh, especially where I grew up in Orange County. This was the home of Ronald Reagan's political career. It's the region that named its airport after John Wayne. And perhaps most notably, it's the birthplace of Richard Nixon. My hometown is Richard Nixon's hometown. And the church that I converted to was Richard Nixon's church. So you can see the lineage there of conservative American politics and the way that this region really shaped several of the the most influential and notable figures in the late 20th century. Brad, you write in the book about how various things led to this creation of a new religious right. One of them was desegregation in schools. Could you speak a little bit about what it was specifically that Christian nationalist leaders were able to seize upon to, to drive this new religious right out of desegregation? Sure. So we have we have Southern California and all the Southerners there. You have a lot of segregated schools in Southern California. You also have segregated schools in the American South. And in 1954, there was a Supreme Court ruling that essentially said that schools must be integrated. There can be no more segregated schools, one for black kids, one for white kids, one for brown kids, and so on. Well, in order to get around this ruling, white Southerners started to send their children to schools that were attached to churches, Christian schools. And these Christian schools were by and large for whites only. So this was a way to keep their kids at segregated institutions and not have to have them go to school with black children and so on. Well, if you fast forward a couple decades, the United States government starts to threaten these churches that have segregated white schools with their tax exempt status. In the United States, if you're a church, you don't have to pay taxes. And so what they were telling these churches is basically, you can't have a segregation policy and be tax exempt. We're going to make you pay taxes. Well, this was a rallying cry. It was not a moment when people like Jerry Falwell or or Pat Robertson or Tim LaHaye or any of these other figures that people might have heard of looked in the mirror and thought, it's time to repent from our sins of racism. It was actually a moment where they thought, we can rally around this issue, claim that the government is attacking us claim that the government is persecuting people who love God in America and really kind of create an army of voters and and people who are upset about these attacks on quote unquote family values. So this really is to me one of the major issues that kicks off 
evangelical mobilization in the political arena in, in the United States, and its effects are still with us today. You also, you draw a through line back to slavery. You, you, I mean, some of the people who are up in arms about this, their grandparents were probably slavers. Could you speak a little bit about how slavery fit into a family values framework in terms of Christianity? So one of the things that you're going to hear in the middle 20th century, the 1960s, 1970s especially, is that family values are really important, that the nuclear family, the the family that has a patriarchal dad and a mother and, and children who sub- submit to their parents and attend church, this is the bedrock of American society, and this is what makes America great. Family values can't be disrupted, otherwise we'll lose the country. And of course, this ideal, this rhetoric has been used for anti-LGBTQ discrimination. Hey, if, if you mess up the, the biblical nuclear family with families that have two dads or two moms or a single mom or something, something else, then you will not only have children who are somehow malformed and poorly raised, but you will have a nation that loses its soul. All right. So the idea is this, protect the family, protect the nation, and have a society that works according to God's plan. Well, guess what? There's a lot of people in the 1860s who were using that very same logic. However, the issue was not gay rights or representation of LGBTQ people. The issue was slavery. And here's how it went. God has a plan for the family, a man who's in charge, a wife who submits, and children. And that man is head of the household. Well, he happens to be head of the household, and that includes the people who are enslaved under him, because black people are not capable of being complete whole adults. So God designed them to be submissive to their earthly white fathers. And if they do that, God will bless them and will bless society and everything will work how it's supposed to work. This is what Gorsky, Phil Gorsky at Yale notes is a God-ordained inequality or a God-ordained hierarchy with built-in inequalities. And so you can see, at least in my eyes, how the logic of the 1860s and the logic of the 1960s is almost the same, except for the issues are different. One is about enslaving black people, and the other is about being prejudiced against the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other folks with queer identities. It's fascinating that the GOP today will call out we are the, we're the party of Lincoln, yet at the same time we see in states like Florida, there are these pushes to completely erase any teaching of the history of this to children. Well, you can say whatever you want about being the party of Lincoln. I mean, California was was part of Mexico. Uh, I mean, we can talk about, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I'm a fan of the Los Angeles Lakers. The Boston Celtics are our rival. They talk all the time about being really good at basketball, but most of the, 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 the championships they won were in the 1950s. So I'm glad for you, Boston Celtics, you won in the 1950s. Everyone in Boston's turned this off now. But here's the point. Who cares about being the party of Lincoln? Things change. Things evolve. What What matters is is what you do. And if we think about the Republican Party in the state of Florida and in other parts of the country, it's very clear that one of the tactics is to prevent the teaching of American history so that there is a an ignorance about the tragedies and the systemic inequalities that have pervaded American history from our outset. One of the tactics is if you don't know about it, then you, you can't do anything to change it. If you don't know that the system is rigged, then you can't and will have no motivation to change the system. So ignorance is, in fact, a tactic, and it's a way to leave uh, inequality intact. And so, look, it's great to claim to be the party of Lincoln. It means nothing. 
because we're not in 1865. We're in 2023. It's been 150 years. So it's time to stop claiming that one is the party of so-and-so and to start realizing that facing up to American history is the way forward to what Lincoln would call a more perfect union. Bradley, you discuss various well-known political figures in the book, along with uh, Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. You also have some discussion about Jimmy Carter. And on the face of it, as a born-again, seemingly pious Christian, he would in some ways seem to represent a kind of Christian ideal. And yet he was savagely attacked by other Christians, including Fallon and so on, at the time for his policies. Do you think, what does Carter represent a different tendency within American Christianity? How do you situate someone like that who was able to become president as a Christian and yet rejected the kinds of politics that are embraced by white Christian nationalists? Yeah, so Jimmy Carter is in many ways built in a lab if you want to vote for a white Christian man to be president. He is born a Southern Baptist. He's born in a very rural part of Georgia, the Deep South. He is raised on a farm. He marries his high school sweetheart. They're still married and have been married over 70 years. He becomes a military officer. When his daddy dies, he goes back home to the farm and takes it over and continues to run the business. And yet, when he was president, he became president in 1976. Very quickly, members of the religious right and white Christian nationalists saw him as enemy number one. And the question is why? And the answer is because what they were after was not a man who shared their piety a man who was devoted to Christ, a man who was devoted to his Christian religion. What they wanted was a man who shared their politics. It was not about identity or piety. It was about power and policy. And so Carter, in their minds, was not uh, defending the family values that I just mentioned, meaning he was not somebody who was adamantly opposed or uh, outspoken uh, about uh, gay representation and rights in the United States. Uh, He was not someone who, in terms of policy at least, was adamantly against abortion. He was not somebody who was in favor of American military aggression. He wanted to employ a, a policy of diplomacy and dialogue rather than sheer aggression and power. He was somebody that was not necessarily against the Equal Rights Act. I could go on and on. Here's the point. In order for them to achieve what they thought was a Christian nation, they had to get rid of the Christian president, Jimmy Carter, and vote in a man named Ronald Reagan. Well, Ronald Reagan was the antithesis of Jimmy Carter in many ways. He was an actor from California, somebody who made his life in Hollywood, which many Christians at the time thought was a den of sin. He was divorced. He had a bad relationship with his older children, and his wife, Nancy, would eventually have an astrologist follow her around in the White House to tell her her horoscope and what she should do that day. No shade to astrology if anyone's listening. The point is most evangelical Christians don't really like that. So why did they vote for Reagan? Because Reagan promised them power, he promised them access, and he promised to do what they wanted when it came to all the issues I just mentioned. To me, this is a really good historical lesson in that the people we're talking about, the white evangelical and the white Christian nationalist, really want power more than they want piety. They don't want a Christian who has a Christian way of living. They want a a president who employ what they think are their Christian policies in the White House, and that is all that matters. It's more about power than anything else. 
some parts of the belief system involve pre-millennialism and the idea that at the end of days are upon us. You write in the book how that personally imparted a, a sense of urgency about how you practiced your own politics and your own religion. Does that also carry across to, I guess, white Christian nationalism more generally? Uh, it does and it doesn't. It's a bit of a complex question. And here's why. When I was growing up in the 90s, the premillennial approach to the end of the world was was fairly popular and it, it reached somewhat of a mainstream kind of status. Tim LaHaye and, and his co-author wrote the Left Behind books, which sold tens of millions of copies and really laid out how the world was going to end. And I think there was this prevailing spirit at the time that, hey, we, the world is, is coming to a close and we have to kind of save as many people as we can. We got to tell our neighbors and our friends and our brothers and our sisters about Jesus. And that's certainly how I thought. My mom asked me if, if, she, if, I, if she wanted me to buy a letterman's jacket when I was captain of the basketball team. And here in the United States, it's a big deal when you're in high school to have your, your letterman's jacket and wear it around school. And I, I was the only one who didn't have one because I told her, save that money and let's buy Bibles for people in Nepal. That was my approach to everything. These days, I think we we have seen a shift in, in the thinking about the end of the world. There's really a sense of not expecting Christ to return at any moment, but more a sense that Christians need to conquer and dominate the world for Christ, and then that will trigger his return. It's, it's more of what we might call in a specialist jargon, a post-millennial approach to the end of the world. It's, a, it's an approach that says, it's not that things are going to get so bad that Jesus has to come to save us. It's that things are really bad. So what Jesus wants us to do is take over the world, and then he'll come back and pat us on the back and say, well done, nice job. I can sit on my throne again. Thanks for dusting it off for me. So it's a little bit complex. It depends where you look these days. And I certainly have scholars and journalist friends who will tell you that in their corners of the American Christian landscape, things look a certain way. But I think that's a general trend that I've noticed. Uh, well, Jesus may not be coming back, but Donald Trump is certainly still here, Bradley, and commands the support of many white Christian nationalists. He also seems to be in some difficulties, legal and political. But in the book, you also examine how similar kinds of belief systems, or not similar, but other belief systems revolving around QAnon and so on, have played a role in developing this political consciousness that's bringing about support for Trump. Can you talk about what other kinds of ideas have been incorporated into this body that, that explain support for Trump and I guess the general complexion of contemporary white Christian nationalism? Yeah. So I think one of the things I try to explain in the book is that, and I, I want to be careful here, and I'm, I tried to be careful in the book, that I, I don't think that all religion, and I'm sure there's folks that will disagree with this, and, and you two might even disagree, and that's fine. But I, I personally don't think that all religion primes people to believe in conspiracy theories. However, I do think, and there's evidence that backs this up, that fundamentalist religions that demand of their adherents beliefs and things that are without data, without evidence, without any factual basis, that those kinds of religious spaces prime their adherence to believe in conspiracy theory. So the sociologist Paul Joup has done some great work showing just how the, the very high percentages of white evangelical Christians who believe in some form of QAnon. He's also shown the, the high number of white Christian nationalists as a whole who believe in some form of QAnon and other conspiracy theories surrounding Trump. And so you can kind of see how it works, right? If you're used to believing things without data, without evidence, 
And if you're also told by your religious leaders that there are evil forces out there who are controlling things, forces that have a hand in our politics and our economics, and they're out there plotting against you and and God and, and your children, you can see how there's a family resemblance to something like QAnon that says there's a cabal of elites who eat babies and worship the devil and so on and so forth. And only only Trump can save us from from this terrible uh, conspiracy. And so I think I think that's part of it. And I also just, unfortunately, we have a, a media landscape here in the United States that really bolsters this. Fox News and, and other outlets really fan the flames of these conspiracies in a way that makes Trump out to be not the philanderer, conspirator, lifelong criminal and business failure that he is, but instead an American savior. I'll say one more thing as well. These conspiracy theories are in many ways, I think, a revenge fantasy. For white Christian nationalists, they feel like they lost their country in the 1960s when the civil rights movement happened and women's liberation and queer liberation and so on and so forth. Conspiracy theories are a way for them to show back up in public and say, we are the ones who will tell you what is real and true and actual. We're the ones that decide what is actually correct. And you scientists, you woke liberals, you professors, you people with your data, go away because we actually know what is going on. In many ways, it's a revenge fantasy. If if I have a cousin who tells me that he thinks there's UFOs and he's going to, he says, Hey, you want to Saturday night? What do you, you want to get some beers? We'll go look for the UFOs. I think they're going to show up over the mountain here. Um, I'm not going to go. I don't want to do that. That sounds terrible, but I, I'm not necessarily thinking that that cousin is going to storm the capital of the United States on, and try to stop a presidential election. Because from what I'm hearing, the belief in UFOs is just maybe there's UFOs and he wants to drink some beers and go look for them. That's a different conspiracy theory or a different myth than the one that says that there's a cabal of elites who are trying to destroy your life and your children. And unless you go into public and commit really radical acts that might include violence, then you'll lose your country. So it's up to you. You want to do that or not. To me, that's a much more dangerous form of conspiracy and myth. And I think that's what we see a lot in the white Christian nationalist movement. The movement has had a few wins lately in terms of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Prayer is back in schools. There's a quote in the book from a congressperson, George Andrews, after prayer was taken out of schools, they put the Negroes in the schools and now they've driven God out. Now they've got God back in. Where where do you think they're going to go next? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the fight for the schools is a big one and it, it it's ongoing. What we're seeing in a, a state like Oklahoma is the first iteration of public funds, taxpayer money being used to to support a a Catholic school. So that's that's there, and it it is it is happening. We're also seeing just all over the country fights over the curricula that are being used in schools. For example, in Florida, you now have PragerU being used in some elementary school classrooms. PragerU is Prager University, named after Dennis Prager. It's not actually a university. And in fact, it's really a propaganda machine that is a a kind of faux intellectual media platform. And uh, it's now being used to educate uh, children in Florida. In one video, uh, you actually have a a representation of Frederick Douglass, uh, an animated Frederick Douglass cartoon, uh, who tells a young uh, young boy that Yes, slavery was bad, but the the thing that was most important for the American founders was to make sure we had a united nation 
built out of the 13 colonies. And once they were able to do that, then they could do things like, I don't know, get rid of uh, the enslavement of, of many, many, many people of African descent who are being brutalized and sexually assaulted and uh, so on. So uh, yes, I, I think American schools are just a big part of the fight. And as I lay out in the book, nothing new there that's been happening since the 60s. And the playbook is really something that uh, has been in place for almost half a decade. So that's one. Reproductive rights is another. And the overturning of Roe v. Wade is 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 emboldened the right to pursue things like a total abortion ban. There's even talk of uh, criminalizing people who leave certain states to get abortions and jail time and so on. And finally, we have just seen the explosion of anti-trans legislation and the targeting of trans people all over the country. And so I think there is a sense that they lost the battle, at least for now, when it came to gay marriage. And so the more vulnerable group in the LGBTQ community are trans people, and they have set their sights on them with full force. So there are more, but I think those are some of the main main hotspots uh, in this debate. Well, debate's the wrong word in this this whole onslaught from the right. In terms of, you've made reference, I think, to the Catholic Church. I did find it curious in reading your account, and there's references to the, the KKK, the fact that it was a bitterly anti-Catholic organisation, I think is somewhat neglected. But at the same time, as you trace the, the, the numbers of white Catholics in the United States who have associated themselves with this nationalist movement has grown over time. And it made me think, well, during the course of this, the 20th century, the development of this doctrine, what were the sources of opposition or dissent within Christianity that took these sorts of this racism seriously? Or was it the case that Christianity as a whole was so saturated in white supremacy that there was very little basis for opposing it? That's one question. The other is just the, the I guess I, I'm struck through reading the book that one of the things you emphasise is there's been a failure on the part of, I guess, scholarship and, and in public discourse generally to take the matter of white Christian nationalism seriously. And I'm wondering what thoughts you had on, on why that's the case and if there's anything, any lessons, lessons to be drawn from that, how can that understanding be applied now to ensure that those failures aren't repeated? Yeah, great question. So I'll, I'll just say that there certainly have been many American Christians who have fought racism tooth and nail, and this goes back all the way to certainly, well, just centuries, I'll say. And I could give examples like David Walker or Maria Stewart, but I'll, I'll just say more recently, the civil rights movement in many ways was led by black Christian ministers, at least in part. And so uh, the 1960s really saw an American Christianity that took seriously systemic racism, economic inequality, many of the, the the dynamics of the civil rights movement were to fight and to rectify economic inequality, the poor people's campaign. Now, there have always been black Christians who have fought this fight and been at the front lines. There have also been white Christians. There were three civil rights activists killed in the South during the Freedom Summer. And so if you look through the history books, by no means is is it void of people of faith who have been fighting against systemic racism and white supremacy. I guess one of the arguments that I try to make in the book is that it really is the 1960s, a time of change and in in some cases, great progress in the country that really stirs the backlash that is coming to fruition now. 
if we have a civil rights movement that leads to the Civil Rights Act, it leads to the Voting Rights Act. We have immigration reform in the middle of the 1960s. We have the Loving case that legalizes interracial marriage in 1967 in all 50 states, uh, the end of Jim Crow, and so on and so on and so on. It really is the backlash of the white Christian nationalists that has come to fruition and really reaches its crescendo in the presidency of Donald Trump. So uh, I think that's that's one answer. What was the uh, second question? I was asking about why it is that you think there are important elements of this story that have been missed um, uh, and how that might be remedied in future, perhaps. Yeah. So I think that, again, I think the argument I'm trying to make here is that all of this happened in front of our eyes. We had in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, and certainly in the 2010s and and in the last eight years, we've had so many signs of extremism, of radicalism, of threats of violence, of the things that have come to fruition in the Trump years. I would say that they haven't been paid attention to because in the United States, white Christians are given the benefit of the doubt in the media and in the culture at large. They're assumed by many, not all, by many, to be the standard American. I, I don't know if if y'all have ever watched The Simpsons. There's Ned Flanders in The Simpsons. And Ned Flanders is like super corny and uh, annoying and irritating, but he's not dangerous. He, he doesn't want Homer to like cuss or drink beer. And he's always inviting everyone to church. And most of the media in this country and most of the country itself, at least the, the white part, assume that white American evangelicals are Ned Flanders. Oh, they're irritating. They want you to go to church and they don't want you to drink so much beer, but come on, they're not dangerous. And in reality, what I've tried to show is that the, the white Christian nationalist is much more like Mr. Burns, the authoritarian who owns the power plant and basically wants to dominate everyone in his wake. And I don't think that we've noticed that white Christian nationalists and white evangelicals on, on the whole are more akin to <clears throat> Mr. Burns than Ned Flanders, because there's always the benefit of the doubt that the white Christian man talking in public is a person of faith, a family man, a dad, a husband, a pastor, a man who prays before he, he leaves the house. And therefore, he must be somewhat good, somewhat moral. He must have the, the common good in mind when he acts and speaks. And I think we need to start paying attention more to action than to rhetoric. And if we did, we would see that those assumptions are are faulty. Well, Brad, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. The book is called Preparing for War, and the podcast is Straight White American Jesus. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. Jesus was a Capricorn, he ate organic foods He believed in love and peace and never wore no shoes Long hair, beard and sandals and a funky bunch of friends Reckon they just nail him up if he come down again Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on Who they can feel better than at any time they please Someone doing something dirty, decent post and frown on You can't find nobody else and help yourself to me
rednecks cussing hippies for the hair. Others laugh at straights who laugh at freaks who laugh at squares. Some folks hate the whites who hate the blacks who hate the clan. Most of us hate anything that we don't understand. Cause everybody's gotta have somebody to look down on. Who they can't do better than at any time they please. Someone doing something dirty, decent folks can frown on. But you can't find nobody else and help yourself to me. Help yourself, brother. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt, ethically and locally manufactured by Qualitops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Fitzroy. 